everyone. Welcome to episode number 56 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. And this one's special. Um, I get to bring back the inaugural guest from the very first incarnation of this uh, podcast. I mean, 56 episodes in its current format, but 150 as the fitness devil with Dean Guido. And uh, our good friend Dean Somerset was uh, guest number one way back over four years ago. It's great to have you back, Dean. Thanks, man. It was uh, a while before you started taking over the world. Jeez, you've been doing everything lately. It's been uh, kind of a fun ride. Uh, and the the irony in it all is you absolutely have been the role model in many of those uh, like facets where you know, uh, it's a public speaking uh, appearance recently, or certainly all the, the writing for major publications and, you know, Teen Nation, that's, I kind of dual found you both writing for Teen Nation and at the same time looking at the, the company session records and going, wait, this is Dean Somerset guy is like one of the top session producers for this old company that I work for. He's also the Teen Nation. Oh, they're the same person. Very cool. So <laughs> I've done so much of your continued education over the years. And no, you've quite genuinely been a, you know, a significant role model in a lot of this process. And this is my 11th uh, month of my 11 year anniversary. So it's been a, quite a long ride. Got to go buy a lotto ticket, man. If it's the 11th month of the 11th year, just need the 11th day. And then uh, that's your lucky lotto ticket day. I hadn't thought about that. And you know what? I didn't do the math on which day starts. So I should have figured out which was the 11th day. Might be <laughs> Uh, I hope everybody listening knows who Dean is. Dean's fairly well established in the grander fitness industry. You know, you're kind of a mobility injury rehabilitation expert uh, amongst many other hats that you wear. And, uh, but I, I want to bring you on today. It's been a really long time since I've had you. And I already sort of alluded to the whole thing about, you know, you've been a major, um, you know, part of my, you know, the, the path that I've set myself on. And you started in the industry how long has it been now? You're still a pretty young guy, but you've been doing this what, script up on what, 17, 18 years, almost 20? Uh, 17 years. It was 2004 when I started into it. So I'm at the stage where I'm telling people to get off my lawn and back in my day. And we didn't have the book face back then. So, you know, I'm old enough to be able to remember pre-social media days. Well, you allude to exactly where I wanted to go with this. So you built a, a brand name and a reputation a uh, career in public speaking and writing before social media was a thing. And now obviously social media is rather ubiquitous. And there was the, the road that uh, the, the community that came up through in your generation, funny saying that, cause I'm actually a little bit older than you who <laughs> wrote for things like T nation who wrote for the other publications and that community of established and known professionals all sort of supported each other. Now, do you think that that's still the best path? I mean, best is a really goofy word, but do you think it's still a viable path for people to establish themselves as fitness professionals? Or do you think that that all can be completely bypassed, you know, just by creating a social media name or some blended nuance of the in-between? Well, the cool thing is that I don't think that there's any one way of doing it. There's multiple ways that you can get there because now there are so many options to be able to find success. So we've got people who, through no fault of their own, have never trained a live person in the world and are able to rack up a million followers on something like Instagram and be able to monetize that and be able to live quite comfortably delivering content that people are wanting and want to pay for. That's great. You've got other people who are juiced to the gills and really good at Photoshop and say, hey, I'm really awesome, so you should come train with me, and they do really well. That's great. You've got people who have never had a social media presence and through just word of mouth, or professional um, referrals are able to be incredibly good trainers. 
you got people working with sports teams who are the best at what they do, but who have no time to go on social media. So the really cool thing is that there's no real best way to do it. It's just the way that works well for the individual in front of you. Um, if I was starting out now, I would definitely be on social media and doing everything I could for free um, as far as like the free marketing goes. So YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that kind of stuff, because that just didn't exist back when I was starting and it would have made things so much easier. I just was talking to Ben Mudge. I think you probably know who Ben is and he's uh, in Northern Ireland and Ben's got over a hundred thousand followers. Really great guy. Very photogenic, great on video. We did, mm -hmm. I put him into T Nation, did a collaboration with him and we got another one in the works. And he's a really good example of someone who he's been doing this a little while, but he kind of blew up, got a lot of social media traction in part due to his image and he's leveraged that, but he's also a credible, qualified, you know, skilled trainer, world-class human being. He's visiting Canada in December, uh, Toronto. And he's like, Hey, you know, is that anywhere near where you are? We could hang out. And I'm like, that's a four hour flight still. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of like when I went down to Australia and I was like, Hey, I want to go, I'm in Sydney, but I want to go check out the great barrier reef. How far is it? Oh, that's a four hour flight halfway up the continent. And that's like, yeah, places are way bigger than you think they are, but, uh, at least he didn't ask if he, you knew so-and-so in Toronto, like all Canadians should. Yeah. Um, I've definitely found that, going back to kind of the original question, following the, this sort of roadmap that I feel like you and people like Tony Gentilcore and a lot of the, the other successful uh, people who started kind of your era, I found writing uh, was one of the most important things. And I think a lot of people, Jordan Syed always talks about the importance of writing long-form content. And I still recommend trainers, no matter what they're trying to do to, to get skilled with it. I found that was the foundation of everything. Once I had already been, I was already writing for T Nation and a couple other things. And then I turned around and paid more attention to social media. And that's when that grew. I think a lot of people are still looking to just focus solely on social media. One of my theories, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, is you almost need to have something to back you up a little bit. Someone finds a post that someone shared and go, okay, cool. What else is there? And that's mm -hmm. it. Just someone who's producing a lot of really like clever quotes. But I think people are looking for YouTube videos, something deeper. Maybe it's podcasting, certainly article writing and pieces of credibility. So any commentary on that? Absolutely. And a challenge right now is that if you were to look for any information, the first place you would go is Google. So Google is going to look through websites, it's going to look through YouTube, and it is not going to look through non-Google related social media posts. Now, if you're looking for specific information on something like Instagram or Facebook, you might get lucky with the search bar search, but it probably won't give you what you're looking for the same way that Google would if you were doing a search there. Plus, nobody's going to look for something on Instagram, they're going to look for something on Google. That's just what they do. So if you were trying to deliver content that you would want people to find, having a website and then having a YouTube channel would be the way to go. And then you can cross pollinate that stuff onto Instagram and put it onto Facebook. So you could take the exact same video off of your phone, put that onto Instagram, put that onto YouTube, put that onto Facebook, and then embed that into a website so that that way you could be found wherever you were going. And I, I'll be honest, like most of my personal business from online coaching or anything along that line has come from my website, has come from YouTube videos, has come from writing for T Nation or other websites. So it's something where it is something that's very valuable and people will find you if you put it out there. So if you have the followers on something like Instagram, they'll see the Instagram post that you put up. But if you wanna attract new people, you've gotta hope that other people share that information, that other people will find it in the explore feature. 
they're not going to find it on Google just because Instagram and Google don't speak well to each other. So you want to be found where people are looking. And that's one of the hardest things for a lot of people to understand is that if I'm looking for something specifically, I've got a way of finding it. And if I can't find you, I'm not going to find you. And I think most of the people who we've seen who are, it's anything in terms of like credible evidence-based or uh, reputable parts of our world, even the one, especially the ones who have larger social media followings, uh, Jordan side is a wonderful example, have been doing all these other things under lying that way before that their social media blew up. Jordan knows his social media, but he's fantastic on video. He's been doing that for a very long time. He's been writing articles since he was in university. Instead of doing his university coursework, building his website, he's yeah. interned with Crisis Sports Performance and Westside Barbell, and he knows the who's who of the, of the industry. And there's another thing, too, is just getting out and actually meeting people and, and networking. There's so much more depth and richness to you know, creating a brand and, and a successful career in this business than to just master your social media. I mean, I still think it's really valuable, but I think it helps you grow your social media if you have more depth behind it for people to dive into. A big part of that's also finding your voice. And I don't know if you've seen any of Jordan's original stuff uh, that he put up on YouTube where he's standing there in a polo shirt and trying to sound clinical. That wasn't him. That wasn't good. That wasn't the stuff that he was comfortable with. He was trying to be somebody. And it took him a while to find his voice and find what he was most comfortable doing. I went through the same process. And I know a lot of people have done the same thing where they try to say, I think people want to see this and put that out there versus saying, here's who I am and putting that out there. So it's going to take time for a lot of people to figure out what their voice is and what resonates with people effectively. Once they can figure that out, they're going to reach people more authentically than trying to be somebody that they're not. He talks about having, having early in his career written articles to try to impress Eric Cressy and how misguided <laughs> that idea was. Yeah, it's not going to work that well. I mean, you're not going to out anatomy Eric. And you're probably not going to outstrength knowledge somebody like Westside Barbell. What you're going to do is put your information out there with your spin on it, your take, what works well for you with your personality. That's about it. So I would, I would say that, you know, someone like Eric, and I want to ask your opinion on this, would be more impressed with someone who is doing a better job of writing to the, you know, the end user, the general population, not to him. What impresses you? when you're seeing emerging fitness professionals uh, working on their careers? What do you look for? Well, obviously, authenticity is kind of a big thing. So you can see through somebody who's trying to be something that they're not. And there's a lot of people who will put out like, oh, here's the trend. I'm going to jump on the trend. So that's fine if you want to do that once in a while. But if you just make it about chasing trends, then you're going to get lost in the mix of everybody else. Um, so he is somebody, so he Lee is somebody who's a fantastic example of someone who's found their voice and figured out what resonates well with what they're great at, but also what their audience is looking for. So she's got a really good style of developing content. Uh, Spencer Nadelsky is another one. He's a physician who's essentially calls himself a meme doctor because all he does is put up funny memes, but then he re relates that back to clinical insights. And he can talk to you about cholesterol and particle size in the most finite detail, but then he shares a squid games meme and it kind of relates back to all of that information to make it something that's digestible. So if you're incredibly smart at what you do, you found that academic brain, you've got the numbers and letters behind your name that means that you know what you're talking about. It's going to be the hardest thing in the world to reach people who have no idea about what they're talking about. And there's still people out there who think that eating celery is going to help them to lose weight. So 
I don't doubt that it's a part of diet, but just eating celery isn't enough to lose weight. There's going to be people out there who still think that if they lift anything more than three pounds, they're going to get big and bulky. And it's just not going to be the case. I mean, three pounds is a really good bag weight to carry their wrist wraps to be able to get into the gym to go bench press your max, but it's not really going to be something that's going to cause you to get big and bulky. So we have to meet people where they're at in a way that disarms them, either through humor or through acceptance or through whatever, and helps them to start opening up and releasing some of their guards to make it so that they're able to accept new information that we're putting out there trust us as trusted sources to put out that information and be willing to make change in their life based on the information we put out there. Numbers do not do that for most people. And Spencer and Sohi are phenomenal examples of what we were just talking about. They both grew fairly quick and large social media followings right around the same time Jordan did. 2017 infographics became this big thing. Mm-hmm. But Sohi has a book. Eat, I think it's Eat, Lift, Thrive. Spencer's got the fat loss prescription, his book. They've both been you know, established educators. Um, so he's had podcasts. They both have written a lot of articles. They both have been on the public speak- uh, speaking circuit for a while. There's a lot of underlying hard work, a lot of education as well. It's another piece of credibility. And yeah. they didn't just become social media darlings uh, first. No, I mean, Spencer's got an MD. So he, I think, is either finished or is finishing her PhD. So they both have the academic chops to do what they're supposed to do. And they were able to find a way to meet people where they're at. So great. That's awesome. Those are fantastic examples of people who I think are continuing to blow it up and who will continue to blow it up. And if you're going to model yourself after anyone, those would be the examples to model after. Absolutely. And then there's the professional relationships. Like, so he very much earned this all on her own, but she also happened to be working with Lane Norton early on, which got her a little bit of extra attention, which led Mm -hmm. to a lot of stuff. And then people embraced Sohi for the quality of her information. Spencer very much had relationships across the industry. I mean, Sohi and Spencer are very good friends over the years supporting each other. But Spencer now is part of Renaissance Periodization. He's had a close relationship with Mm -hmm. those guys, which just further expands his brand. So it's way more than just social media, but both have leveraged social media to do phenomenal things with their careers. Absolutely. I mean, social media is a tool, but it shouldn't be the entirety of what you're trying to do. Because eventually, like social media followings are fantastic, but one, sooner or later, you got to get paid. If you got a million followers and you're broke, what's the point of that? I mean, you should be able to say, to say to your followers, here's what I do as a profession, and here's how I can help people. Now, if you want that help, here's the cost associated with it. What are we going to do? So if people want to follow you and not ever pay you, great, that's fine. There's not a problem with that. You can still give them high quality information and give them a lot of value for their follow. But eventually there should be a point where you're able to say to people, hey, so I'm a professional. I actually am really qualified at what I do. I think that I could offer a service to a lot of people. Here you go. What do you think? And then expect to be paid for it. That's wonderful. You've used YouTube to a certain degree. You've got a fairly big library of YouTube video. But I don't think that was the main vehicle that you worked on to kind of grow a big audience with. I think it's been more of a functional tool to complement everything else, particularly your article writing. Um, any thoughts on using YouTube? I know that you've mentioned before, you know, your friends with Omar Isaf, who's probably one of the people I think in the evidence-based world who's done the best with YouTube. Just thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just primarily been a content tool. So it's been something where I just try and kind of put up coaching videos. I use it a lot for my online coaching platform and I've actually parlayed my online into my in-person coaching too. So 
a lot of my clients now, instead of me doing just like a paper book, I actually have an app set up so that I can give them programs and they can take on their own. I can log and see how they're doing things. So the YouTube videos are set up as coaching videos for that app, but it also works as content for website, for blog posts. But I mean, it also is just a tool that I can use if a client's like, hey, what do I do for this exercise? Here's the video. Here you go. Enjoy. So rather than me trying to explain it out or draw a stick figure, I actually have a video of it where I actually walk them through and coach on say, do this, don't do this, do this. But I mean, I definitely underutilize it compared to a lot of other people. I don't even check the comments on it just because I don't care. And like, if somebody wants to comment on a coaching video, that's not meant for them. Great. Whatever. If you ask questions, I probably am not going to look at it just because it's, I've got 17 other ways that people ask me questions. So that's one that I just don't look at. So if I haven't responded to your call, uh, your question or comment from 2014, sorry, I'm not going to, <laughs> it's probably because I just haven't seen it and I don't even know how to check it. Um, but people like Omar are doing fantastic work because he's humorous. He delivers great content in really relatable forms. He reaches out to people who are awesome, has them appear. I mean, I was in Toronto a couple of years ago at an FRA certification for functional range. And he saw that I was going to be there. He's like, come into town and let's film some content. I was like, okay, cool. Here's a guy who's got a million followers who wants me to be on his videos. Awesome. Great. So he got the benefit of new content and was able to get a little bit of expansion on my name. So it worked out really well that way, but he's done a fantastic job, but there's a lot of other people who are doing really fantastic work too. Um, one thing to consider is that that's where a lot of people are going to learn things, whether it's fitness, whether it's virus stuff, whether it's politics, whether it's whatever, that's where people are going to learn about stuff. I mean, anytime I have a question about what do I do with my house, it's like, I've looked up how to fix my dishwasher. I've looked up how to fix my uh, washing machine. I've looked up how to find the battery terminal in my car so that I could change the battery. It all goes through YouTube. So when people are looking to learn stuff, that's one of the primary resources that they go to. I asked my 20 year old nephew, what source of social media do you look at the most? He said, YouTube. I asked him about Facebook. He's kind of cringed. He's like, why would I do that? Like, that's where my aunts and uncles and grandparents are. Why would I want to go on Facebook? I was like, okay, fair enough. So YouTube it is if you want to learn stuff. You implied something very important in here too. There's, a, there's the amount of time that you have to devote to different things and the stage of your career you're at. I mean, like you said, you know, 17 years in, you're extremely established, 50 client sessions a week, you know, plus a an online business that I'm sure is probably as busy as you want. And probably, I mean, the last year and a half, notwithstanding, more demand for you to appear in public speaking engagements, more on that in a second, than you can probably create the time for. So there's a certain point where for you to go out and, you know, try to, well, go and work intentionally at your Instagram to try to reach 100,000 followers, that probably doesn't serve you or have much value to you. So where are you directing your efforts, your time, and what might not be valuable to you at this stage in your career that might be useful to a, uh, a coach that is, you know, building their career? Um, well, right now it's primarily just working with my clients because it's been a busy time getting back into the gym again after multiple shutdowns. So um, it's just working with a lot of the clients that I'm seeing in person. So getting back into the groove of that and just refining the love of doing that versus doing just Zoom calls all the time, which has been good. I've still got a lot of clients who are doing Zoom and virtual sessions, but it's something where it's different when you actually are in the gym and feeling that energy. So just being able to get back into doing that um, for the online work, it's been consistent, which is great. 
for the speaking, not so much right now, just because it's not so much, but I've got a couple of events coming up that I'm looking at booking and finalizing and one in Toronto coming up in a couple of months. So hopefully I'll be able to start getting back into that again. But now that things are starting to open up and travel is becoming easier and there's fewer restrictions on where we can go, it's making things a lot easier to look into doing that. So after spending two years of not really being on a plane, after being on a plane, like every second weekend for a couple of years before it's, the itch is starting to get back. I had the same itch and I had a speaking engagement a couple of months ago in Spokane, which was a cool opportunity. And then I went down to Luca's event. Uh, I'll come back around to that stuff. But as you mentioned, Toronto, and that's actually why I reached out to you and said, hey, look, come on here. Let's let people know about what you've got going on. So let me see if I got the dates. Uh, November 21st in Toronto. So yeah, let's talk about it. Scientific applications and mobility training. So how do you actually get improvements in range of motion? What works best for each scenario and how much improvement could you actually expect? A lot of the time when people talk about mobility or flexibility training, it's like, we'll do this. Okay, well, then what? We'll then do more of it. Okay, then what? Like, how long do I have to do this before I see results? Well, just keep doing it and eventually you'll get there. And if not, then just do more of it. That's usually been kind of the, the outline of what mobility training has been, right? Like a lot of the time it's hold this stretch for 30 seconds and then hold it on the other side for 30 seconds. And it's like, okay, well, how much should I actually expect to improve my range of motion? I don't know. Eventually you should do it. If I was to say to somebody, if you squat three sets of five reps twice a week, how quickly should you be able to see improvements in your squat? We should be able to have an answer for that. And it might not come down to saying, well, you're going to see a five kilogram increase in this week. But we should be able to say, okay, well, based on normative features, if you did that workout, you should be able to see an improvement in your squat weight within two to six weeks. That's not unheard of, right? We should be able to see improvement in that. So if I'm not seeing improvement in my range of motion, why? There's a lot of conflicting information in the body of research out there and a lot of really poorly done studies. So you have to dig into it and kind of look at it from different angles compared to what's actually going on. So when I looked at a lot of the research and I went through about 500 papers on mobility or flexibility training and found that there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really benefit you and a lot of stuff that really does benefit, but people don't really talk a lot about. So if you're going to do something like a static stretch, try to contract the muscle at the end position. That produces like way better results than just doing a static stretch. It doesn't have to be a hard contraction, but just like if you're going to do something like a hamstring stretch, lean into that and then try to push your heel down hard and then just hold that for like 10 to 20 seconds. You'll get way more out of doing that than just a static stretch. If you want to actually do like any kind of adjustment to the joint itself, you're probably going to look at way longer stretches. Like I'm talking like six or eight hours of stretching. <laughs> and that's not even an exaggeration. Like a great story is my wife dislocated her elbow a couple of years ago and she had to wear a brace that pulled her into end range flexion. And she had to wear that for eight hours, take that off and then wear another one that pulled her into end range extension and wear that for eight hours every single day for a couple of weeks to progressively regain the range of motion in her arm after it became fibrotic. So when you want to get improvements in joints, it takes a long time. If you want to just adjust neural tension, yeah, it's pretty quick. But when it comes to actually improving mobility training, learning how you can actually assess an individual's mobility or uh, flexibility, figure out what the limiting factor is, and then give them the appropriate modality to see improvements, that's something that's not really done that much. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to put this course together. And it's only a one-day course, which is fantastic because a lot of people have very short attention spans. Well, like just listening to stuff, I'm like, I, we can't even do this stuff justice in a short podcast. So 
you know, I believe in your stuff. Um, I put my money where my mouth is numerous times. Uh, with our old company, I went to tons of obviously free course stuff, but I would go and pay to spend three days doing post rehab uh, essentials or mm -hmm. go and see you and Tony teach the hip and shoulder, complete hip and shoulder blueprint or whatever more complete hip and shoulder <laughs> version that you guys have concocted yeah, yeah, yeah. In time or my, you know, what something that changed my career completely was traveling to the Kansas City Fitness Summit in 2017. And that's where I met Spencer. And so he and a lot of other industry people, but I went down because you're presenting, right? Pete Dupuis presenting, Mark Fisher's down there. So, and that was amazing. Um, so I believe in your stuff now. I don't believe I can make Toronto, unfortunately, because I just came back from Seattle and I have to go home to see my folks in Newfoundland in uh, very early November uh, for about a week. But I am going to go see you in Orlando in early February. So there's another event. And I mean, Orlando and Florida. On one hand, Florida has been the complete Wild West. On the other hand, yeah. <laughs> Florida is probably not a place that's going to cancel anything given the way that they've been approaching things. And you know, my hope is that shit settle down a little bit. But I'm looking It'll forward probably be warmer than Edmonton in February, too. It will be, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to go down there, and then I have a... There's a Tool concert by just by pure chance two days after the event, and there's another one in Tampa the day later. So I booked both Tool shows. I'm wearing a Tool shirt right now. and But I'm going to go to this three-day event, and it's got Chris Duffin, it's got Dan John, it's got John Berardi, uh, Tony Gentilcourt, Lisa Lewis are there. I just had Lisa on the last podcast. Uh, she had an event slated for Boston recently, but they decided given the nature of everything that they were going to postpone that and, you know, figure that out as they went. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, this list goes on Clifton Harsky's in this one, Luke Behosevar's in this event. It just, it's, I could go on and, and list them all off John Russin. So a little bit, anything special you got planned there to kind of prime people to go and attend that? Um, if they can't make it to Toronto, that would be a great one to go to because it's just a two hour uh, practical hands-on type thing that I'm going to go through. So it'll be a lot of the theory, but then I'm actually going to get people up and moving around and hopefully doing a couple of the things that I talk about and a two hour digestible thing should be a lot more comfortable for people. Plus Orlando, who doesn't like Orlando? Never been I'm going to have to look and see if there's a, a, like a magic game or something like that going on that weekend too. Yeah, I think we're going to go and check out um, maybe Universal Studios in the day in between. You know, never there been. Go. Go, go. I don't know if that's the one with Harry Potter World or not, but uh, it is. It is. So, okay. And I'm down with Harry Potter World. I don't know. Oh, I moved the castle over there. I got a Lego castle that uh, me and my girlfriend <laughs> built for a date night. You want a really great date night idea? Go get like a big Lego set if you're into Star Wars or Harry Potter and just and build it. Um, you see, they have a new one out that's the Titanic. It's like nine thousand pieces. It's a one to 200 scale, but it's like the biggest kit they've ever made, but it's the Titanic. Is there an iceberg as well? I'm sure you could build one. You can probably just make like a paper mache one and be like, ah, no. <laughs> that thing sank off the coast of where I grew up in Newfoundland. Yeah. Uh, that I can't even imagine. And I guess one of the challenges with building Lego ships is then where do you keep it all once it's all assembled? You need an entire Try to display for it. I mean... One of my clients, <laughs> the uh, Star Destroyer, the Star Wars one, and that thing's massive. So yeah, you got to nice. put stuff on display. Yeah, um, I mean, you work that hard on something, you got to show it off. You got any Lego in your house? None. <laughs> Just wrestling. We have too many dogs that like to chew on stuff. So uh, I mean, yeah, we want to make sure that we don't have dogs winding up with uh, missing pieces that we then have to go to the vet for. <laughs> 
Uh, Ozzy doesn't, my cat doesn't uh, eat Lego, thankfully. Uh, but you do have wrestling belts everywhere in the house, right? Just the one. I mean, there can only be one championship belt and that's just down in the basement. Okay, fair. Um, (laughs) Well, another thing I wanted to talk about too is I remember a little while back, I can't remember the exactness of the post, but you said something about you were improving a lot of little aspects of your finances, personal, professional, um, you know, business costs, that sort of stuff, and rolling it up all into paying less for some of the services that you were signing up for. And I, we know that personal trainers, we're as a industry kind of awful at this stuff. I have a, my formal education is actually in business and finance. So a little bit of a different perspective, but most of us don't. So any thoughts on what trainers should be looking at when it comes to managing their businesses or their personal finances. They work so hard to make the money. Yeah. I mean, part of it just comes down to knowing where the costs are and what the costs actually look like. Um, one person who would be a great Instagram follower is Ramit Sethi. So S E T H I. Uh, he's got a great book. I will teach you to be rich, which is very much like what I've talked about with uh, Spencer and Sohi taking really complex information and then funneling it down and saying, here's what you need to know. So if you're able to look at the actual cost of the stuff that you're paying for, it makes a big difference. And I don't just mean like, what's the sticker price on it, but let's say you wanted to go out and buy a new vehicle. And the person who is selling you the vehicle says, oh, you can do three years to pay it off or seven years, but the seven years will be way lower payments. A lot of people will be like, well, seven year lower payment. Cool. I can pay less and have more of a vehicle. But the total cost of that vehicle over seven years with compound interest is probably going to be like 10 or $20,000 more. So it's a matter of saying, okay, well, what's the actual cost that I'm paying for things in addition to what are you actually getting out of it? If I'm paying for a $30,000 vehicle and it costs me $50,000 to get that $30,000 vehicle, that's not really saving me that much. So if I'm able to do stuff like I've got an online system for my coaching clients, it's a set fee per month. But then for a while, when I moved into the new role of just my own business, I was using an online scheduling and payment software that was a different cost. So the two of them were operating side by side when my business one for my online coaching clients eventually expanded to allow online in-person scheduling and stuff like that. Now I've got two things that are running the same essential operations. I can ditch one. I can get rid of it. Looking at reassessing things like mortgage interest rates. Rates right now are really low. If you're able to get into a lower mortgage interest rate, that's a no-brainer. You're not going to become financially viable by skipping a latte or by not treating yourself to a lunch once in a while. You're going to do it by getting rid of the very expensive stuff that's costing you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month. So just being able to adjust some things where I was able to move finances over to an automated system, reassess my mortgage, get that reduced, to look at insurance and make sure I wasn't paying too much for too little. Save me a couple thousand dollars a year, which last year, that was a big help. Um, I actually just put up a post today and I like this finance analogy of instead of trying to save after you've spent, spend after you save, but it extends the post is about, um, you know, making time for working out. And it's instead of working out or planning for working out time after you've already consumed all your leisure time and downtime, you know, plan the working out time first, but back to the finance side, you know, for a very long time, I've made sure I have an automatic monthly RRSP contribution. Um, I have done that for quite a while. And then I turned that into my first time home buyers you, in Canada. Anyway, for Canadian listeners, you can take out a part of your RRSPs and put it towards your down payment on a house and then repay mm-hmm. the loan. So that's an important contribution. And then this year I actually set up a wealth symbol account 
And I've now been taking a certain amount of money monthly and putting that into index funds. And I don't want to give like investment advice, anything broader than that. I think James Krieger and uh, Chad Landers do something with FitPro Financial. They're amazing. If you want to get a little deeper into, uh, you know, some of that stuff uh, for anyone listening. True. Um, subscriptions. So there's another one too. Um, there's a really good book, The Automatic Customer, that talks about subscriptions and how a lot of businesses are moving to subscription models. So we have coaches and trainers who are moving, in a lot of cases, towards monthly, you know, automatic, automatically renewable things instead of um, you know session block uh, setups. But at the same time, we can also assess what subscriptions are we paying monthly that are, you know, you struggle to turn around and say, oh, I'm going to cancel this thing. People get locked in magazine subscriptions is kind of the old thing. You can take a look at all your subscriptions and go, all right, I'm paying for Prime and Netflix and Disney and blah, blah, blah. And which ones are valuable and, and which ones add up and, you know, $8.99 or $11.99 a month doesn't seem like much. But if you've got 10 of those things, well, there's a hundred bucks a month going out the door. Do you need them all? Right. So it's, I think it's worthwhile assessing all that stuff. Thoughts, comments. Um, with that, a really good self-audit to do is if you have an Apple phone, go into your account in your iCloud and scroll down and it'll show subscriptions. So it'll show all of the active subscriptions that you have and what you're paying each month. Are you using them? If not, delete and automatically cancel that subscription. I think they have something like that for Android as well. Um, but yeah, subscriptions, they just add up over time. And a lot of the way that they'll get you is they'll say 30 days for free and then you can cancel at any time. But after 30 days, you forget about it and then you just get billed. So being aware of that kind of stuff makes a big impact. And there's actually banks that are starting to catch on to that and saying, hey, if you want to manage your funds, we'll tell you if you have an automatic subscription that's coming due or whatnot. So it's becoming something where, yeah, a lot of people do it because it's easy on a low cost system to get a lot of people into it. And it's very hard for a lot of people to cancel it. So it's kind of guaranteed income for a lot of places and it's repeatable revenue that they can count on. So it's easier for them to do business that way versus doing session block or like dedicated timestamp or anything like that. So, yeah, I think it's something where it's better for business overall, but it's going to be a challenge for the individual if they don't use that service. Okay. Well, how about this? Um, You know, I've still got some time left with you. Given the fact that the last year and a half has been what it has been, I always like your insights on any future thinking, forward thinking about general wisdom that you feel personal trainers would benefit from, uh, especially after going through all this stuff. Is there anything kind of going forward you feel like is going to be more important um, areas that trainers should pay attention to with their own businesses, their marketing trends? Well, a big thing is that everywhere went through kind of the same thing all at once. So it's not something where we're looking at, well, over in this demographic or over in this place or over in that, it's like everyone did the same thing. Everyone, the gyms were shut down pretty much worldwide for a period of time. There are locations where they reopened here or there or whatever. But then people started to realize that, you know, I can still do a workout virtually. I can still use minimal equipment and get a workout in. I can do stuff from my home. Are gyms great? They absolutely are. And they're going to cater to a lot of people in a very specific way. There are also going to be a way of crowdsourcing equipment. So there's no way that the average person entering into a gym like Evolve is going to be able to spend $100,000 on equipment on their own. They'll be able to access that for a monthly fee. That's the purpose of a gym, to be able to allow people to pay a very small nominal fee and have access to a huge amount of equipment. That being said, there was a huge boom in home gyms. 
where a lot of people, like I had a couple of clients who moved from one bedroom condos into houses specifically so they could build a gym in their basements. And they spent 20 grand on their gym in their basement that they wouldn't have spent otherwise. So that is something that has become pretty apparent. So there's a lot of people who are saying, you know what? The gym is great and it's going to meet a lot of people where they're at. But there were so many gyms that had to close down and so many financial or fitness facilities that went through such a financial hardship that now there's an increased demand on a reduced supply. So there's more people who are looking to access fitness who may not be wanting to go into a gym for one reason or another, because they might feel like there's not that much of a chance of it happening. There's people that are looking to go to established gyms that have been really financially successful through all of this. There's people that are hesitant about gyms where they've had to go through bankruptcies or foreclosures or limitations where they're like, I don't know if this gym is going to be here in three months. And a lot of people are making changes in how they access fitness. My wife and I were talking about this too, because she's a cyclist. She works with a cyclist coach. She goes to a cycling shop and everyone that she knows in cycling is kind of going through this change where they're starting to run. And for cyclists to run, that's like a big deal. Like they just don't do that. And there's a lot of people in the fitness industry who are like, you know what, going to the gym was great, but I started hiking or I started biking or I started doing something different. So there's been a big change going on and a lot of people doing new things for the first time that may not necessarily be in the gym. So for a lot of trainers who are interested in expanding their career, they might have to just meet people where they're at. Now that might have to be doing home-based workouts that might be offering services to build home gyms that might be figuring out ways of creating events outside of a gym. Like maybe you do a hiking camp or something like that, or there's a lot of ways that you can get people involved in nature. There's a lot of ways that you can do things where that are atypical fitness events. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people are going to be able to say, you know, fitness isn't just a barbell or a dumbbell or a kettlebell. Fitness can be a whole bunch of different things with the gym as a part of that, or the gym is not a part of that. So meeting people where they're at and being a fitness professional is going to be kind of a challenge, but it's also a really cool opportunity to do some new things and try a few new things too. There's a lot of fitness facilities that have gone bankrupt, unfortunately, which means there's a lot of available spaces in commercial real estate. If somebody wanted to start a new gym, there's a lot of equipment manufacturers out there that are starting to ramp up production again. If you wanted to get new stuff, there's a lot of uh, gyms that did have to go through foreclosures where you might be able to find something fairly low cost. So it's something where if you can find that great, but there's a whole bunch of people building home gyms that are sucking up a lot of that equipment too. So it's something where there's a huge opportunity for demand and supply, but there's also some really cool challenges out there that I think a lot of people are going to rise up to. You're in uh, my old company. Um, they went through bankruptcy and restructuring, right? You and I are now contractors of the Evolve umbrella, which is growing. But yep. your old location, that stuff, the, the auction for that equipment is coming up over the next kind of week and a half or so. And there is a yep. lot of stuff because they were forced to close several lo locations in order to keep a handful of them open. So there's a lot of cardio and, and weight equipment available out there if someone locally is looking right now. One of the things I think I've gotten a lot of requests for, and I can't meet this request because of my schedule, but is people with those home setups, they're looking for trainers to travel to their homes. Now there's challenges with that, obviously the, the travel and the ability to schedule a lot of people. But if you're a, a trainer whose schedule is being underutilized, there's a grand opportunity there for you. Any thoughts or wisdom on how to do that business model? It is possible. And I know that there are quite a few businesses that do in-home training. 
Um, I've had a couple of people that I train who are trainers who say they don't want to do it just because of the security issue. So they think if I'm a female going into somebody else's home, that's a big security risk for me. I'm not comfortable doing that. There are some people who are like, yeah, that's fine. I'll be able to do that. Outdoor workouts are an option for a lot of people too. So great, whatever. If you have a home gym where you're able to have people over to train in your home gym, that could be an option as well too. It might also come down to whether or not you need a specific business license for that facility, whether you need to do any upgrades or renovations to your place to make it meet up to city requirements. So you might also just operate under the table. Who knows? I'm not going to say that one way is best versus another. That's the cool thing about the fitness industry right now is that we're all in a large adaptation phase. So we're finding what works and we're going to figure out where the dust settles. But at the same time, all of this challenge has brought a lot of opportunity if it's something that can be realized. Cool. Yeah. I, um, during all this sort of stuff, I set up a home gym and, you know, certainly saved my life in terms of my ability to keep my workouts going. Uh, and I found that I really love the balance. So I was going into Evolve at, I, I'm not one of those 6am trainers, but I was going in, you know, nine or 10 o'clock to start and then working till eight or nine o'clock in the evening. And then going and working out if I bounce over to good life for just to get out of the gym because I've been in the same building all day. And what I've settled into is I now go into Evolve from about 10 to three or four and I come home and I do some evening sessions and the weekends I make sure I, you know, I'll do a few sessions here at the house. So I've got that split. I've got Ozzy sitting next to me here. I get way more time with him, but I'm not leaving, you know, when it's still kind of, especially in the winter where it's a little dark out when I'm leaving the house. And by the time I'm home, it's dark and I, I don't see much sunlight anymore. At least I get that little bit of drive in the sun. So I found that balance has been recuperative and has helped recharge me a little bit and uh, sustain this because, you know, you and I, we're not 20 year old kids anymore and we're working absurd, you know, session total hours. And then there's all the stuff that goes on top of that where, you know, it's not like all of a sudden, okay, the sessions are done. That's the end of it. There's the online work and, and that stuff fits in differently. And then there's any writing or media content creation stuff I found with my social media, God, that, that takes at least an hour and a half a day between you know, writing, uh, interacting with the comments and the messages and all that. And I think that stuff's really valuable. Um, I'm also in a different stage in some of the things I'm doing in my career than you are. So that stuff's going to be a little bit more of a priority at this point for me. But um, I've, I found that I've enjoyed the balance a whole lot more than just being in one building for 12 hours, you know, four or five days a week, and then for six or seven hours, the other two. Right. It was worth it to put in that time and effort. I'm not afraid of that, but I can't do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, especially if the facility you were in didn't have windows or not enough natural light. Like that's one of the things I found immediately after moving from the city center mall into Evolve, there was actually windows and sunlight and everything just made my mood a lot better. So being able to see the sun at 12 o'clock in the afternoon or one o'clock in the afternoon makes a big difference. I, let's talk about Evolve uh, downtown a little bit, because obviously I, I love the facility. I think it's great. A lot of my friends, uh, you know, pulled a lot of guy, guys and girls out of various other situations and dropped them into there. And you get, you know, time with Hannah Gray. You and Hannah, she's been a longtime client and mentee of yours and good friend. And Hannah's been thriving in that environment. She's crazy busy. And then you've got a, a whole legion of our former, like, co-workers from the old company um, and a whole bunch of new people coming in there. How, how's that environment been for you professionally? You just sort of alluded to, did it rejuvenate you at all or anything different about the experience or anything you would say to trainers considering it? 
Um, if you're specifically looking at changing your location, whether it's to like somewhere in Edmonton or wherever, um, definitely talk with the people who are the owners and see if you're a good fit with them and then see what the situation is like. And it's something where if you're going to make a professional move, you don't want it to be a knee jerk because you heard about it on a podcast. You want to actually do a little bit of research on it and see what's actually going to work well for you. Um, another big one is just make sure that if you're making a move that you have all your bases covered. So are there any limitations on what you can do, limitations on time frame, uh, mobility of yourself, your clients, any of that kind of stuff? Just be aware of what is actually in the situation so you don't find yourself like saying, I should have thought of that sooner. Yeah, you're gonna get jammed up with some legal ramifications if you know your entire clientele follows you out and the old company decides that they're not okay with that because usually there's language in your employment contract that says that's a no-no. Sometimes, but even then it comes down to whose choice it was and what communication that you had with it. So if I say to a client, you should come train with me at this gym, that's different than me saying, I'm going to leave and go over here. And the client saying, okay, I'm going to come with you. So very different situations on that. One is solicitation. One is the client's right to choose. So it's something that comes down to how do you actually set it up? So when I left the company, it was just, I'm gone. Bye. <laughs> and I handed a list of all of my clients, their contact information, who I thought would be a suitable trainer to work with each of them to the manager and walked out. So then it was a matter of rebuilding the clientele and the clients that did want to come with me were able to find me because they had my contact information, but it wasn't something where I reached out to any of them. It was just, okay, here's where I'm going to be. That was I, had, I had more lead time. Uh, so ultimately I just honored all my obligations. I trained everybody down to zero and then I picked an yep. exit date and I knew that, okay, I can't continue to be in this environment anymore. And, and I went there and of course the same thing, everybody had my contact information and, and the entirety of my clientele said, no, we, 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 our relationship is with you. We want to come and train with you. So I was able to continue on fairly strong. So, yeah, so yep. I think the key there is the strength of the relationship you have with your clients. I think sometimes these companies can have this idea, I mean, legally, they certainly think so, but they think morally and ethically, well, they own the client, which is a very short-sighted attitude for a company to take when in fact it's a trainer who's been putting in all that time and, and relationship. And as a trainer, if you build those relationships in the long run, your clients are going to be very loyal to you and want to stay with you. If you move, I don't recommend moving frequently that can really just, that's a, that's, that'll just piss off your clients and that'll damage your business. So if you're going to make a move, like you said, Dean, really think strategically, look at what's in your long-term best interest. I've made one move in my entire career. And that was it. And I have no intentions of making another. Yeah. When in doubt, talk to a lawyer. That's, That's what they're there for. They'll tell you what's, what to do and what not to do. And if you're open to liability or not. So talk to them and it might cost a few bucks to start with, but if it saves you a few thousand down the road, great. More than worth it. Well, I really appreciate uh, getting you on here. It's been great to catch up. I know you and I haven't had much that we've both been really busy and the world has not exactly facilitated a lot of this stuff. And we unfortunately weren't able to pull off the, uh, you know, our event uh, in the last two years, given, given everything we still have. I, I get a lot of questions about, our, you know, what's the plan with the Evolve Canadian Strength Symposium. We haven't sat down to go over it. You know, I, I'll, I think I'll leave it at this. We would love to be able to do it sometime in 2022. That is certainly my intention. We'll have to look at scheduling, what's going on in your schedule, what your events are. And uh, if we're able to bring it to everybody, we want to do a really killer job that the first year went off great. 
So um, I'm, I'm committing to exploring it to the best of our ability. And if we can pull it off, amazing, because it's something I value. It might just have to be the Andrew Code show too. Well, if that's what we have to do, <laughs> but, uh, we have a third partner, John Chung, although he won't get up on the stage. Um, yeah, he'll just uh, send a manager to organize pulling the strings and make sure that it's all set up and lend the name behind it and make it so that it actually runs. It's kind of a big deal. Well, it wouldn't feel right if, if you weren't a part of it, but we'll, we'll talk and, uh, you know, ultimately we'll, if we have anything tangible, we'll update people, but it's going to be, you know, well into 2022 before that's a uh, reality. Dean, True. thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, let everybody know where they can A, find and follow you and B, get more details on uh, the Toronto event in November. Uh, if you like the website, it's deansomerset.com. If you're on the gram, it's Dean or D Somerset one. I've actually got two accounts. The first one is an old one where I can't remember the password for it. So don't click on that one because I don't think I've touched it in like five years, but D Somerset one um, for the Toronto events is November 21st. We have continuing education credits available for it. And it's a one day event at Bang Personal Training on Queen Street in downtown Toronto. Awesome. And uh, for anybody listening, you know, I, I hope by this point you've been already following Dean. If not, I can't recommend Dean enough. Literally, like when I talk about the people that I respect the most who've had the greatest influence on me professionally in terms of the education I've gotten, Dean is absolutely number one top of that list. So I can't thank you enough for all the stuff that you've done for my career. Uh, so guys, go follow him, plug in with him, engage with him. Uh, don't comment on his YouTube expecting a response. He's not going to respond. <laughs> and uh, for anybody who, if you're listening to this and you haven't yet contacted me, or if you want to ask me questions, I'm always accessible to it on Instagram, especially at Andrew Coates Fitness. Uh, go follow me there. If you're just somehow finding this episode for the first time through Dean's Media, uh, this is, I think, your fourth appearance. I know you were on three times in the old format. You guys can scroll back down and see those. You'll listen to Dean Guido uh, ramble incoherently at times with, with interesting uh, additions to the conversation. Dean is fantastic. He's doing really well. Um, his, God, I don't know how old his kid is now. It's gotta, his kid's got to be approaching a year old. His life has changed. Probably, yeah. Yeah, he's doing well. And, uh, you know, and maybe if you like what you see and a lot of other fitness professionals like Tony Gentilcorn, Lisa Lewis, and Friends of Dean's, Sohi Lee, Spencer Dolsky have all been on, maybe you'll stick around and check out more. So thanks, Dean, so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on again.